Some of you may be familiar with the name Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein is considered by many historians to be the most talented and the most famous of all the musicians in American history. For some of you Hamilton fans out there, that is uh, basically the 20th century version of Lin-Manuel Miranda times 10. Because he was the musical director of the New York Philharmonic. He went symphonies around the world. He conducted them all over the place. He composed the scores for many uh, musicals that are on Broadway, Peter Pan, On the Town, and of course the most famous of all, The West Side Story. In our modern context, Lin-Manuel Miranda was only 10 years old when Bernstein died in 1990. His work still had an incredible influence on that young man and this young musical prodigy of our time. In a recent interview, he talked about uh, being uh, cast for the, for the role of Bernardo from West Side Story in a sixth grade play. And so his mom checked out the VHS tape from uh, the store, which some of you know what that is. The rest of you have no idea what I'm talking about. We checked out a VHS tape and they watched it together. And when the song America from that musical started, and it was about whether or not they were going to live in Puerto Rico or live in the United States of America, he was shocked because he too was from Puerto Rico. And Miranda would go back in the summers to Puerto Rico to spend time with his family. He ended up seeing the West Side Story again as a senior in high school, this time as the director of the musical, and uh, because he was working out a new rendition, a new version of it, he became the Spanish translator and some of the newer ideas that he was trying to implement with his version of the West Side Story. What these two composers have in common is they were dedicated to addressing the cultural and social phenomenons of that day through music. When Bernstein died in 1990, hip-hop music was just waking up, just becoming known, so certainly he didn't know much about that genre of music. However, in his time, his use of rhythmic dancing, thoughtful words, creative jazz, uh, the way that he used all of these own works, he actually was very intentional there on Broadway and other ways within the symphonies that he was hiring uh, men and women of color when no one else was doing so. He was very engaged in cultural and social justice issues. So maybe you are familiar with the name Leonard Bernstein. But do you know the name of his first symphony? Before anyone ever heard of the story, West Side Story, Bernstein wrote a three-movement symphony called Jeremiah. And the third movement of that was a solo, and the third movement by a mezzo-soprano, that's an alto for people who are not uh, musically minded, from Lamentations chapter 1, and the entire song is sung in Hebrew. It was composed in 1942. It made its debut in 1944, winning the New York Critics Circle Award in the same year. Bernstein's first symphony became a huge success, and he went on to perform it in Boston, in New York, in St. Louis, Detroit, Prague, and then even in Jerusalem itself. What was it that gave this particular symphony such a wide appeal? An appeal enough that actually make him famous enough so that when he wrote West Side Story, people flocked to come and see it. What was going on in the world in 1942 when Bernstein wrote it? What was still happening in the world in 1944 when Bernstein took the symphony on tour? Come on, historians, what's going on? World War II. 
this music, while beautiful, it is haunting as a symphony. And it pulls out something in the emotional state that was palpable at the time in the world. A state of lament, of lamentations. My name is Pastor Milo, and if we're just meeting for the first time this morning, if you're just walking in this morning, if you're just checking in online for the first time this morning, if you're listening to our podcast archive a few weeks from now, welcome. But welcome to a series with a little bit of, or a lot of, tension in it. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're involved. We hope that you've brought your Bible with you this morning because we're going to spend a few weeks in a book of the Bible that we don't normally spend a whole lot of time in. And this sermon series on the book of Lamentations you will find in our time and in our day is actually something that is palpable that we need to spend some time in. We skip over this because it's unpleasant, but we need it. Similar to the appeal of Leonard Bernstein, written from this text almost a century ago, this book speaks to the groaning and the tension in our own hearts as we go through suffering and loss. We started this sermon series last week, and there were some who met me in the lobby with a big grin, a big smile on their face, saying, I'm so excited that we are going through lamentations. I've been longing for this. It's true. And maybe that's you this morning. But our natural proclivity when going through pain, when going through sorrow, when going through grief is to try to numb the pain in a numerous and litany of unhealthy and damaging ways. So is it possible to lament in a healthy manner? What does the Bible have to say about these things? If you've got your Bibles with you, I hope that you do. Will you turn to Lamentations chapter 1? Just a moment ago, Jeremy read, he read from Second Chronicles. That was the framework by which this story is happening. That's the narrative, that's the landscape of what's going on. The uh, city of Jerusalem is in exile. And so uh, there's some awful things going on for the people there in Jerusalem. That's what we're kind of stepping into the middle of. But if you don't know us, you don't know our church, you don't know what's going on, you are also stepping into the middle of something here. And you need to know that as well. This is a hard moment for us as a church, as a pastoral and staff team as well. If you were with us last Sunday, you know that Pastor Brian opened this sermon series. His sermon title was Learning How to Lament or Learning to Lament. And he opened up our sermon series here a week ago. I'm going to be very careful not to share his story because it's his story to share Uh, in the coming days, but he preached that sermon on Sunday, and five days later, his dad was riding his bicycle, a seemingly healthy man had a heart attack, and died 24 hours later. This just got really, really real for all of us here in this church. A catastrophic heart attack that none of us saw coming, and we hurt with him and his family, Brian and Molly, the kids. The book of Lamentations could not be any more real to us than it is right here, right now. A lament is a heartfelt cry of sorrow. When I was reading about Bernstein's symphony on Jeremiah this week, I looked through and tried to find various YouTube videos of performances of this piece. And I found there's a lot of audio versions of it, but there was only one 
video version that I could find, and that was probably 40 or 50 years old, and so the quality of the video was not good. But this woman's anguish was so real. It's in Hebrew, so it's in a language I can't understand. I don't exactly know what's going on, but it is written all over her face. And because she's a mezzo-soprano, she's got this lower voice, this deeper voice that just, just cries out in pain and in sorrow. And I find it stirring something emotional inside of me, the same type of guttural cry that's inside of me, asking God, what are you doing? Here's how the chapter begins. Lamentations 1, verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. A widow, this city, who once was great among the nations. She, who was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave. Verse 2. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all of her lovers there is no one left to comfort her. All of her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Lamentations, the first word of the first verse of this chapter is the word how. And actually in Hebrew text, the original text of this, that is the title of the entire book. How? It's meant to be asked as a question and a shocking statement. The author, and many believe that it is the prophet Jeremiah, but others also believe that it's someone writing in the style of, of Jeremiah, someone else from that time period, and he or she wants to write in that style, but they want to mimic what is happening all around them, expressing sorrow at what they are seeing. And as I'm watching Bernstein Symphony performed, as I'm watching this, this woman perform this song, it is written all over her face. And even if she's singing a language I don't understand, it's written all over her. How? In English, we would express things this way. How could this happen? Or if your spouse, if my wife, if she answers the phone and I hear her say, How? What happened? I know that something is terribly wrong. And that's the intention of why this book begins this way. Why it's titled in this manner. How? The city of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, the story that is happening beside and alongside of this story is devastating. After multiple kings have come, they're set up, they're removed. After multiple deportations, after a brutal siege of the city, the walls of Jerusalem, they were penetrated and the Babylonian army sacks the city. The temple was stripped of all of its gold and all of its vessels of worship. Along with the rest of the city, it is all burnt to the ground. The city, the nation, and all the people of Israel are devastated. These first two verses, we see a city. We see it as portrayed as broken and personified as a lonely widow whose life has now taken a tragic turn. Jerusalem used to be full of people. It used to be great among the nations. It used to be a princess among the nations. But now she is there, this widow, this personified widow, and she is alone and she is a slave. The fall has been complete and it has been colossal. And there is much sorrow. And there is much weeping. She has tears running down her cheeks. She's been abandoned 
by those who used to love her. She's opposed now by those who used to call themselves her friends. Jerusalem is isolated, sorrowful, left alone, abandoned. This is the historical context of the book of Lamentations. How could this happen? In a biblical framework, in the biblical context, a lament is actually a very specific form of poetry. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's a form of poetry that we desperately need in moments like these. There are poems in the Psalms that are written in this form. David writes a poetic form of a lament there in the Psalms. A lament is a prayer by which the believer pours his or her heart out to God because of the struggles and the tensions and the pain of life. And here we have an entire book of laments. Specifically, there are five different chapters. So there's five different poems, five different chapters, all written in this poetic form of a lament. They do not connect one to, to another. They are all separate uh, poems that have been written there. The first four of them are all very similar, and then the fifth one takes a little bit different turn. A lament is interpreting pain. In its expression, a lament acknowledges that there is more to life than pain or difficulty. Because in a Christian lament, a Christian lament or a believer's lament deals with more than just the thing that has happened, but also deals with what lies behind the thing. It laments over a specific issue, yes, this specific issue that is at hand here, this, the, the landscape that is portrayed here is brokenness, which is part of our world. But a lament actually looks at this delay that we see all around us in what is and what is believed to be God's beautiful plan for all of mankind, for deliverance. The book of Lamentations is written not only to give voice to the pain of what is going on, the destruction of Jerusalem, but also to remind future generations how Judah had reached this point of no return. And so that Lamentations is this expression of sorrow, but it's also a book of poetry serving a warning for those who would come behind. And so it's poetry, right? So here's another thing you need to know about how this poetry is put together about this chapter and about, if you look through the rest of the book, the chapters that follow. There are 22 verses in chapter 1, 22 verses in chapter 2, 66 verses in chapter 3, 22 verses in chapter 4, and 22 verses in chapter 5. In the Hebrew alphabet, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so what is going on here is in some of your translations, you'll even see it, that there is a marking that shows the Hebrew letter and then a verse. That happens there. What the author wants us to see is that there's complete and total suffering from the letters A to Z, is the way we would say it in English. The suffering is total. The suffering is complete. And this is put together beautifully in a poetic way to be able to walk through each letter of the alphabet and be able to describe the suffering that goes with that letter of the alphabet. It is comprehensive, the destruction of Jerusalem. The enemy has won. The enemy has prospered. And the blessings of the Lord are no longer on his people. They even seem to be on the enemy of God's people. So this book is, is more than just a historical record of what has happened. It's designed to paint a picture for us and give us a message of warning. Continue on verse 3. Now that you understand the poetic nature of what's going on. So this is the third letter of the alphabet. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. 
She dwells among the nations, but she finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Number four, so the next letter of the alphabet. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All of her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Verse 5, her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile captive before the foe. A biblical lament shows us the brokenness of the world and contrasts it with the holiness of God. This chapter is tuning our hearts not only to the reality of sorrow in our world, sorrow in the world that she is looking at there in Jerusalem, but also to the reality of what is divine judgment from God. And herein lies the tension between the sorrows of this life and the sovereignty of God. The awful things that we see in a belief that God is able to see and able to interact and able to move whatever He chooses to do. And there's tension between the two. And we just want to ask the question, how does this happen? Many of us, is the most familiar hymn in all of our hymnals, and all of the music that we sing, we sing about the amazing grace of God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. God's grace is only amazing because God's judgment is real. God's grace is only amazing because God's judgment is is real. Verse 5 points out here that the Lord is punishing Judah, punishing Jerusalem because of her many, many sins, generations of defiance before God. The world we live in, the world they lived in, it is broken. The world we live in, it's a world that is full of sin. The world we live in, it's a world that is full of broken people. The world we live in, it's a world that is full of sinful people. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is the one way that Lamentations is different, for example, from the book of Job. In Job, there are distinct categories that happen of suffering and lament that are different from what we see here in this book. If you're familiar with the book of Job, what we see there is this this category of innocent suffering, innocent and personal suffering. While we see in Lamentations, we see an entire people group, an entire nation suffering because of the guilt of sin on their lives. Here's how the artist is continuing to paint it. Look at verse 6. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that can find no pasture. In weaknesses they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. All the splendor, all the glamour has all departed. All her enemies laugh 
at her and her destruction. Lamentation shows us that sometimes what happens, because in the people of Jerusalem, not every single person in that space, not every single person in that city was shaking their fists in defiance before God, but as a nation and as a people, there's something happened here that is a collective sin that is being judged. They are still affected by the consequences of sin that resides here in this world, there in their city. They look back. They look back at the way that things were. They remember how things started, how things were so beautiful before sin came into the picture, before they shook their fist in defiance before the Lord, and they grieve at where they've come. This book reminds us that sin is not just an individual issue. There's something broken in our world, in our culture, and in our nation. My own individual sin, however, does not only affect me. It affects everyone around me. And because we are all sinners, then the depravity of man, or the the word meaning that the sinful state of the human race before a holy God is affected. We are all affected by the nature of sin, our sin nature. Here's how the prophet Jeremiah describes the same situation in his book, This Exile of Jerusalem. This is over in Jeremiah chapter 2. It says this, verse 17. Have you not brought this upon yourself as a nation by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will remove you, reprove you. Know and see that this is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you anymore, declares the Lord God of hosts. Just as a glance here, I think you would agree that we're not talking about the problem being that actually drinking water from the river. It's a poetic thing that's helping us to be able to see not only were they drinking water from them, but they were also bringing in, as we see, all these different uh, idol worship, all these different gods that they were worshiping, all these different things that they were bringing into their culture when God said, there will be none besides me. And what happened to Jerusalem is a small but important microcosm of what kind of devastation that sin creates in this world. Poetically, here's the exact same scenario that's described. It looks like this, verses 8 and 9 of Lamentations. Jerusalem has sinned grievously, therefore she has become filthy. All who honored her now despise her, for they have seen her in her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, she says, for the enemy has triumphed. The language here, the painting here, the the picture that is being drawn for us is a picture of shame, of pollution, isolation, exposure, misery, hopelessness. Jerusalem is experiencing an abandonment from God and is tasting the consequences of their sin. And it is a bit like hell on earth. Continues on, verse 10. 
The enemy has laid hands on all of her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter into her sanctuary, those you have forbidden to ever enter your assembly. And all her people groan, verse 11, as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food just to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, she says, for I am despised. People are trading their treasures away just to get a piece of bread. And if that individual pain and that individual suffering is not enough to jolt you, the realization is is that every person that remains in the city is in the same exact situation as this woman being personified. All suffering the same effects of the defiance of sin before God. That is what makes this scene so horrific. The enemy has defiled their sanctuary, taken all their artifacts of worship away from them, and all of the people are starving to death. It's not just the depth of the devastation, it's actually the colossal expanse of it all that is just too much to bear. I was reading stories this week about people who have been to visit Auschwitz in Germany. I've never been. One of the reoccurring themes that keeps coming out if you read about this is comments from people that that's actually a relatively small compound there in the middle of the city. But there, because of its location and prominent space in the middle of the city, the old buildings there have been converted over to a museum. But it is a devastating museum of the horrors of what happened there in World War II. They're all on display. By design, you get to see this sense of methodical and organized genocide that was happening. And you go through room after room after room full of shoes, full of luggage, full of human hair. And you are just torn in two by what happened there. Auschwitz is sickening. It turns your stomach. What I didn't know about was just outside the city is a place called Birkenau. It's 425 acres. It's over 300 buildings. And visitors can walk through the courtyards and the fields and the remnants of buildings for hours upon hours upon hours. And people who've done that, they write about the scale and, and they see the scope of what's gone and it is reprehensible. It's too much to comprehend. The buildings, they're falling in. Many of them are gone. But the brick chimneys from the barracks remain for as far as the eye can see. 425 acres. The depth of sin is not the only problem. It's the scope of sin. The reason why lamentations are written, the reason why this poetic form of lament is written, is not because of the destruction of Jerusalem. Because what lies behind it? The author, whether it's Jeremiah or whether it's another author that's trying to sound like Jeremiah, is lamenting this spiritual rebellion that caused this devastation. And Israel had been warned repeatedly again and again and again. They knew better. And they were given so many opportunities to repent from their ways. And they hardened their heart against God. And it led to their ruin. So if it's your first week here, you're like, man, 
these guys really, really like to suffer. What a depressing group of people. Perhaps. I guess what I'm trying to do here this morning, why I'm leaning in on this morning, is I'm trying to help you come up against the weight of what is being written here. Feel the pressure to feel the pain, the crushing pressure and the weight of sin in this world. And we're only in verse 11. We're only halfway through the alphabet. If it's any consolation, I'm not going to go the whole way through. But I want you to see something, and it's actually part of this formula of the lament. You've heard of the stages of grief, of course. You've heard of that before. Well, each of these poems of lament actually has stages of lament that are kind of written into them as well. Not only here in this book, but also in the Psalms that we read, even the ones that David penned or other authors have written. There are, there are seemingly four stages that we actually see in a lament. Cry out, complain, turn, and trust. Cry out, complain, turn, then trust. And what we've been reading through, we began with, is the cry out, how? And you'll see that each time. And now we're halfway through the complaints of chapter 1. I told you there was one complaint for every letter of the alphabet. But what happens again is that chapter 2 picks up. Now there's 22 more complaints that come. Complaints about God. Complaints about the situation that they're in. Then chapter 3 follows as well. Now there's 66. So three times for every letter of the alphabet. Complaining, complaining, and complaining. And what Pastor Brian pointed out last week is that this is in God's Word because it is appropriate for us. To be able to call out to God and say, I don't like what I'm going through. I don't understand what I'm going through. How does this happen? And he puts it here for us. Because if you've been through something, and many of us have, that's the wrestling that's going on inside of your heart. And it's foolish to put on a smile on your face and tell everybody that everything is okay. God knows the condition of your heart. So he says, go ahead, complain all you want. And when you're ready... Turn and put your head on my chest, because I'll be right here. But the author's not done complaining yet. Look at verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all of you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering, this that was inflicted on me, the Lord has brought on me in this day of his fierce anger? Hey, you! You reader of this poem, yeah, you, the one driving by, you, the one who is looking in on me, you, this church that is reading this poem 3,000 years later, hey, look at me. Have you ever seen desolation like this before? Have you ever seen pain like my pain? Have you seen what he did to me? Have you ever seen sorrow like this? Have you ever seen what happens when God's wrath is turned on someone. This is the moment that Bernstein is trying to capture. This is part of the passage that is sung, that symphony in Hebrew. The angst that comes out in the mezzo-soprano's face. The pain that wants you to feel. You see, although Bernstein was born in Massachusetts, he was the son of a Ukrainian Jewish family. His parents, Jenny and Samuel Yosef Bernstein, 
both immigrated to the United States. So part of why he wrote this symphony was to commiserate with his father, who was still a practicing Jew, over the horrors that were happening to his people overseas. As far as we know, as far as history tells us, uh, Bernstein was not a believing man. But the program notes that were written in the 1944 performance of this symphony in New York, he described the third movement that he called Lamentation as, This is the cry of Jeremiah as he mourns his beloved Jerusalem, ruined, pillaged, dishonored after his desperate efforts to save it. The symphony Jeremiah is one of a number of Bernstein works where, by his own admission, he is struggling with his own crisis of faith as he sees the atrocities the brokenness, the sin in the world there in the 20th century. God, why? Why would you let this happen? How? God, how? How could you let, how could you let your wrath rain down on these people, your children? This is mean nothing to you. Is everyone going to pass by and leave me like this. Have you been hearing anything that I am saying, God? Verse 2, there are no friends. Verse 3, there is no rest. Verse 4, there is no help coming. Verse 9, there is no comfort here. Verse 11, there is no food for anyone here. Verse 12, there is nothing left. And then the rest of the passage turns. And it basically repeats the same theme, but now in a very personal manner. I have no friends. I have no rest. There's no help coming for me. There is no food left for me. There is nothing left here for me at all. This is the situation. Maybe this is the way that you feel this morning coming in. Everything is gone. Everyone has left. No one is coming to help. All I see, all I feel, all I can think, all I can taste, all I can touch is sadness. And you, you're going to just walk right by me like everyone else did. And you know what? We will. We will. And you will. We will walk right by because even on my very best day, I am a wretched sinner. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I will walk right by. You will walk right by. Here's the beauty that peeks out from behind. All the rubble. I hope that I've been able to show for you, demonstrate for you that there is nothing, there's no stone left unturned, that it is all destruction everywhere you look, that that's the that you are seeing right now. There is nothing left. And here's the beauty that starts to be showing from behind the rubble and the ruin. Is a God who can exact his wrath in this way, from the letters A to Z, in complete ruin, in complete Destruction for every single letter of the alphabet. His judgment misses nothing from A to Z. And do you know what that also means? That His grace misses nothing from A to Z. His grace 
His grace is sufficient for you, friends. The stages of lament. Cry out. Complain. All the letters of the alphabet. Get them out there. Turn. Trust. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable that that even the most combative against Christianity, even the most combative against God's Word, even the most agnostic person, they've heard of this story, this parable before, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what is the key to that story, friends? What is the key, church family? What is the key to that? The person is hurting, and everyone walks by. Everyone. The leaders, the rulers, those who should know better, they all walk by. That is except for one. Everything is gone. Everyone has left. No one is coming to help. All I see is sadness. Everyone has walked by except for the one. The man who stopped. Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he stopped, and he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn, and there he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, he gave them to the innkeeper, says, look after him. He said, when I return, I will reimburse for you, and I will come again, and I will come again, and I will come again. Any expense that you have, I will pay for See, this is the beauty that's behind the brokenness of sin and then death. The absurdity, friends, of the Christian story that we tell every Christmas, of the nativity there in Bethlehem, is that the God of the universe, the maker, the creator of all things, the one who is holy and cannot tolerate any sin in his own presence, he's the one who stops. Emmanuel with us. Where there is no comfort, He comforts. Where there is no pity, He shows compassion. Where there is no hope, He restores. Where there is no possible way to repay the debt or to fix what is broken, He pays the price and He pays it in full. Jesus paid a debt that He did not owe and it was paid in full. As the band comes up this morning, as we finish our time here this morning, let me ask you to do something. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you to focus your attention, to settle your hearts for a moment. We will be singing a song of all things called the goodness of God. How can we sing about the goodness of God in the middle of lamentations? Well, the goodness of God begins with the good news of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then everything around you is dead. Everything is broken. Everything is desolate. And there's nothing you can do about it. Here's what you need to hear. Here's the good news you need to hear. God exists and you matter to him. God exists and you matter to Him. And only God is holy. 
And your sin and my sin separates me from Him. There is nothing we can do about it. And yet the Son of Man, He sees my guilt, He sees your guilt, and He loves me still. Providing payment for my sin, Jesus died and He rose again. And by doing so, He's providing an everlasting, never giving up, always and forever love you accept that gift, your life with Jesus will start now, and you can live it eternally. And it was not meant for you to keep it to yourself, but to give away. God's only Son provides everlasting life. Dear Lord, if there's anyone here this morning coming in realizing that their life The world that they look at is broken, it's damaged, everything has fallen apart. But Lord, if they cannot see the beauty behind the brokenness, all they see is brokenness because they have not made a profession of faith, because they have not grasped the hold of that good news of the gospel, I pray that today would be the day. John 14, 6, you say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that they would grab a hold of the one way to get behind the brokenness that we see in this world. Lord, we go through terrible things, difficult times, seasons we cannot understand and we can't quite figure out how to live out the tension here on this earth. Lord, there are many here who have a long-serving, long-time relationship with you. They know you and know you well. But Lord, I pray that there would be some who might need to write their own poetry of lament, to get it out, to cry out to you and say, God, what are you doing? How dare you, God? And just to come to the realization that after all our complaints, after all our concerns, that we can bury our head in your chest, Lord, turn our hearts to you, because you will not walk by and leave us here. Lord, we trust you. We trust your word. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us. We pray, Lord, that we would grasp a hold in the middle of our lament to the goodness of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.